0: Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, I share my recent presentation that was part of the UVU Provost COVID-19 academic seminar series on developing meaningful work within the COVID-19 context and beyond. Welcome back to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In today's episode, I'm sharing my presentation from Monday's UVU Provost COVID-19 Scholarly Seminar Series about creating meaningful work amidst COVID-19 and implications for managers moving into the post-pandemic world. This is really a combination of both a scholarly and a practitioner-oriented presentation I combine elements of two presentations that I made over the summer to share with the UVU academic community. I hope you enjoy. Okay, well, thank you. I uh, appreciate the invitation, the opportunity to share some work with all of you on campus. Uh, As you can see here, the title of my presentation today is Designing Meaningful Work During COVID-19, Implications for Managers and the Future of Work um and so when the call for possible presentations for the seminar series went out um, i immediately thought that this would be a good one to share with the campus community it's actually a combination of two different presentations that i did over the summer uh, for the international society for quality of life studies Uh, they're celebrating their 25th uh, anniversary this year and they, they do practitioner-oriented webinars. So I did one version of this presentation that was for managers and leaders, and then they have uh, an annual conference like most academic societies do. Um, because of COVID, their conference went completely remote, and so I had the opportunity, uh, I think it was in August, to share the more um, scholarly side of the research and going a little bit more into depth on that so what i plan to present today is basically a combination of of those two elements and uh hopefully have a good um, mix of practitioner oriented types of um, applicable information that any of you across campus might be able to utilize uh, but also talk a little bit more in detail about the research and the methodology and the statistics and things like that as well Um, As I get started, I do also want to just acknowledge colleagues that I've worked with um, over the years on this and related topics. I utilize data from the International Social Survey Program um, for what I'm sharing with you today. And this is really a culmination of of dozens of studies that I've published, some uh, individually by myself and others I've co-authored with other colleagues at UVU. Um, And so I wanted to acknowledge Dr. Maureen Andrade, uh, who we've been close collaborators the last couple of years since she joined my department. And we've published a bunch of of articles uh, together. Um, Dr. Doug Miller, Dr. Jeff Peterson, Dr. Bern Kupka, all who have also been co-authors on different articles. And currently we have a a new um, focus looking at this topic but specifically with a uh, comparative international uh, look at gender differences in the workplace and implications for uh, female workers and my wife Jackie Westover is is working on that uh, project with me as well as uh, Angela Schill in my department um, and over the years for the last decade you know as, as I've been working on all of these related projects. I've had lots and lots of students who have worked with me, uh, probably too many to, to specifically mention, um, some grad assistants, um, lots of undergrad um, students who have worked on various projects and, and gone with me to present at conferences and publish articles and such. So anyways, I, I need to give my, uh, my acknowledgement to, to all of the efforts and, and contributions that all of these other individuals have made um, that will be represented in in what I'm sharing with you today. Alright, let me move on in my slides. Uh, this is, There's a lot of text on this slide. I'm not actually going to read all of this, um, but I will just mention that I put a PDF of my slide deck in the the files in Teams. So if you want to get into my um, slide deck uh, and and read through this, you know, kind of in-depth agenda slide, um an overview slide uh, feel free to do that but at the bottom you can see you know what i plan to focus on um, an overview of COVID-19 impact on work and economies to technological innovations influencing shifting working conditions the uh, COVID-19 accelerating the shift to a new normal in the workplace and the future of work in the post-pandemic world and then finally policy questions and implications related to economic and employee well-being that is what i'll try to hit on in the next little bit and i'll also try to leave some time for q a at the end Um, but don't don't uh, hesitate to um, chime in if if any of you would like to ask questions along the way i am more than happy to field questions throughout as well all right to to lay the groundwork for this a little bit i just wanted to give a little bit of a contextual overview to my my main theoretical perspective. Um, I am an HR professor. I teach in the organizational leadership department. Uh, I am a believer in the value of human capital and perhaps uh, human capital as even the the most valuable uh, asset that an organization has at its disposal as it's trying to carry out its mission and provide value in the marketplace. Uh, If we want to have a competitive advantage, You know, we can do that through efficiencies, through processes, through intellectual property, through technologies. There's lots of ways we can do it and companies have lots of different forms of capital um, to try to do that. Anyone who's taken Econ 101, you know, uh, plant equipment, property, you have intellectual property and you have financial capital, you have your human capital. Um, The reason why I think human capital is so important is because it's the people That ultimately are going to do the creativity and innovation that's going to help the organization um, differentiate itself and uh, achieve success in the marketplace so even with the best technologies even with the most efficient processes if you don't have um, good people if you're not attracting and retaining good people and leveraging their capabilities and potential and giving them an opportunity to contribute in meaningful ways doing um, their best work, you know, and the things that they enjoy doing the most, if that's not happening on in the aggregate on a regular basis, organizations can't thrive sustainably. Um, that's the main premise behind really everything uh, that I'll be presenting today and in all of this research. And so really I, I start with a, a foundational um, bias towards people-centric um, and people-centered organizations that uh, we need to value our people we need to invest in our people we need to create organizations um, with dynamic and uh, cultures and environments of inclusivity belonging um, and diversity and ultimately as as we start to leverage those capabilities that everyone brings to the table that's when the organization is going to be most successful and on this slide you can see this is a summary um, uh, figure that really highlights some of the major research findings in this area. And and there's many more, there's lots of outcomes, lots of positive outcomes for having people centric um, organizations uh, and creating a high performance work system. Uh, Ultimately though, I, I just chose a few to put on this slide and you can see the flow of how these variables interact with each other. And so at the top you see interesting jobs So think about interesting work, um, meaningful work, the type of work that you get excited about. uh, Getting up in the morning, you you know even though it's hard, um, and and there may be aspects of it that are tedious, you still are excited and you're engaged and you're ready to go and you're ready to tackle the difficulties. That's what we're trying to do if we want to have a high performance work system and if we value our people is create really meaningful and interesting jobs. When you have interesting work, that leads to higher, uh, more satisfied workers and more engaged workers. When you have more engaged workers, uh, who are, they're more motivated, um, they have better interactions with, um, customers that drives customer satisfaction. It also decreases negative behaviors in the workplace. So things like, um, absenteeism and turnover reduce dramatically when we have more engaged, satisfied and motivated workers. And, and when that's the case, that lowers cost when we when we have more satisfied customers, we retain more customers, we have more brand loyalty, that leads to higher sales, and both the higher sales and the lower costs lead to higher profits. Um, nobody's gonna argue against higher profits for an organization. And so as you look through this flow, you can see you know kind of the business case for why people-centric organizations is really important. Um, but setting that aside for a moment, I would also just encourage, you even even without the business case for it which is clear and is evidenced throughout the literature um, that the human argument is very important uh, that we we want to treat people with dignity and respect we want to show that we value them and we want dynamic inclusive um, organizational cultures and that has inherent uh, uh, intrinsic value in and of itself even if it didn't lead to better performance for the company or for the organization. Um, Fortunately, we don't have to pick and choose, like we get to have both. So if we focus on people-centric organizations, uh, we will have more innovative, productive organizations, but we'll also have um, people that thrive and people that um, feel valued and have the opportunity to contribute in meaningful ways. Um, On the bottom of the graphic, you can see another um kind of input so if we want to create an innovative culture we want people to push the envelope and really try to better understand how they can um, uh, make create value in the marketplace but then we need to create a knowledge sharing uh, environment so you know just as a as, as a very simple example something like this uh, seminar series where people are encouraged to share their research and share their, their disciplinary insights across campus in an interdisciplinary fashion, you know, just doing simple things like that, where people are encouraged to share with each other their expertise, what they know, what they understand. And, and over time, as you promote that, Uh, People recognize that they are encouraged to speak up, they're encouraged to share, they're encouraged to work across the aisle, work with people who may be in completely different uh, disciplines than them, completely different functional areas than them. All of that then creates an environment where you have greater innovation within the organization. Uh, Greater innovation leads to higher quality um, and more satisfied customers, higher sales, higher profits. Also, that knowledge sharing environment, that culture that creates um, opportunities for efficiencies and greater productivity uh, among your people, and that will lead to higher profits. So again, there's a lot going on in this slide, and we, I really could probably talk about it for another hour uh, without even moving on, but, but I just wanted to, to lay a little bit of the groundwork for the business case behind why this is so important, everything that we're talking about today, and also um, to make the human case that we we really need to value our people to help them maximize their potential and to have a chance um, to leverage the collective genius you know, of our people to drive innovation, to drive um, better outcomes for the organization. Now, we, we've all been living in this COVID environment, uh, but even before COVID hit and we had so many people had to start working remotely, um, and and that was aided, of course, by uh, various technologies. Um, there were significant technological innovations that have been influencing the shifting shifting work conditions and the nat- very nature of work for a long time. Um, you know, we we often talk about the fourth industrial revolution. We're in the middle of that. Um, but really, since the the first industrial revolution, uh, and really throughout all human history, we see any time there's some new sort of um, technical technological innovation that it disrupts the nature of work and it it changes uh, the way people do their work and how they interact with each other. Uh, What we've seen in just the last decade due to um, higher uh, lower costs for computer memory and exponentially increasing um, capacity, computing capacity, that the technological shifts and innovations have been even more extreme. And so there's just a laundry list of disruptive technologies that have come into the world um, just in the last decade or two that are going to fundamentally change over time. They're going to fundamentally change what it looks like to be an employee, what it looks like to work with an organization, and what it means to to do meaningful work. Um, Some examples, I mean, I'm sure you've talked and thought a lot about things like um, artificial intelligence and machine learning, blockchain, uh, pharmacogenetics, um, driving vehicles. Uh, robotics. I mean, there's just so many things. The list goes on and on and on all of these disruptive technologies that ultimately uh, are going to replace a lot of the more routinized types of tasks that we do as part of our job. And they, it also highlights though, the types of work that will be very difficult to replace. So, so, you know, as I think about my job as a professor, um and what my job looks like today versus what it looked like when i started 11 years ago versus what it might look like in another 10 years i suspect there will continue it's already shifted a lot and i expect it'll continue to shift quite dramatically and uh so i need to learn like what types of behaviors what types of um value do i add to the organization um in order to set myself apart so that i'm still employable right and we all need to think about that question uh, because what we've done in the past won't necessarily translate to what needs to be done in the future Uh, so this next slide shows some of the skills that are needed in the future workplace and those drivers of change so on the outside ring you see um those drivers so we have an increasingly computational world we have super structured organizations um, and we could argue about all of these and say whether they're good or bad, uh, but the, ra- the reality is they they just are. that they, they exist. So this is happening, um, and whether it's good or bad, or uh, you're indifferent to it, uh, this is the context that we're in. Um, we're in a globally interconnected world, increasingly so. We have new media ecology constantly, new forms of media coming about, new communication tools. Uh, we have new smart systems and machines. And, and simply the, the demographics of uh, humanity continue to shift where lifespans continue to, to increase, the, the uh, longevity of workers and, and the, the viable number of years that we can remain in the labor force continues to increase. So what does that mean for how we upskill and reskill ourselves over time? These are all the types of questions we need to be thinking about. So in the middle of this uh, diagram, you see some of those different skills that are needed. And these are all skills that if we have, we will survive just fine as the nature of work shifts as driven through technological advancement and these other drivers. Um, Things like cognitive load management. Uh, We need to have cognitive agility and we need to be able to be highly adaptive and we need to be able to, to manage and juggle a lot of complexity. Virtual collaboration. Now we're living that right now, right? I, at this moment, I'm sitting in my, the corner of my bedroom while I'm presenting to people across campus and you probably your home offices and bedrooms as well. And we do have a lot of opportunity for collaboration. In fact, I would say that since COVID happened, I've been doing a lot more international collaboration than I had done even previously, simply because um, everyone has shifted their mindset towards um, these, these virtual opportunities and, and so it's, it's just so easy to hop on with anyone. Just earlier this morning, uh, I was talking with a colleague, um, in Tel Aviv, you know, and we, when we had a really great, um, conversation and, you know, that's, that's awesome. And there's no reason why we can't continue, uh, to explore those types of virtual collaborations. We need to be literate within new media. We need to have cross-cultural competencies. Adaptive thinking, sense making, design thinking, transdisciplinarity, um, and we could add others. I'm sure there are other important ones that would also go into this. This uh, the skills that are needed for the future of work. Um, but ultimately, these these are our value added proposition as human workers in organizations. Anything that's um, routine, uh, any any skill set that can easily be easily be replaced by Robots, computers, um, or new technologies. Uh, simply, we won't. That if, if that's what our job is, and we can't adapt, um, then then our jobs will likely be displaced over time. And again, that's not even. There's no value judgment there. It's just it just is. That's a, a fact of the situation. Um, okay, so now let me with with that as groundwork. Let me get into um, summarizing some of the studies that have been uh, completed over the last decade in relation to this and as I mentioned at the beginning I utilize data from the international social survey program I first got connected with this um, this really rich data set uh, back when I was working on my master's thesis Um, and at the time there were only two waves of this data from 1989 and 1997 Um, and then as I was moving into my dissertation and my PhD um the the next wave was released the 2007 wave um and since then there was a yet another wave the 2015 wave and there will be another wave of this data that comes out in another couple of years um i I share that with you simply because if if you find this presentation interesting or any of the variables that i'm looking at interesting this is you you can look at this data it's publicly available um and there's even some for limited types of um, descriptive um, analyses and and basic kind of comparative descriptive data. You can even do some of that just right on the website um, through some of their interactive tools. Um, So it's really, really cool. And you can get access to the full data sets to run all of your your more complex inferential statistics and things like that as well. as you, as you like. So um, as, as it stands right now, there's four waves of this data, the work orientations, and there's hundreds of questions um, that look at various aspects of work, the nature of work, um, people's experience in the workplace, the types of organizations they live in or that, that they work in, um, other living conditions and their own personal um, uh, living situation. Um, so all of that uh, provides a lot of richness and a lot of opportunity for analysis. And in the most recent wave, there were 37 countries involved. So this map shows you um, the countries that were included in the data analysis. Um, and each, each wave they've added more countries. So all the way back in 1989, there were only 11 countries involved. Um, in 97 it went up to 18. In 2005 it was up to 28 and then um, in this last wave it was up to um, 37 so it, it it's it's an increasingly robust um, and cross national data set okay here you can see the mod- the main model and all the different variables that have gone into what um, i've been exploring over you know the last decade so on outside the box you have these contextual variables so Various country specific um, context and country specific culture. Uh, within the country specific context, there's lots of economic variables. Um, you, you think of all the socioeconomic and geopolitical types of conditions that exist within a particular country. That's what I'm trying to control for uh, as I include those contextual variables, so that as I look at variations across countries, um in the nature of work and the experience of workers in the workplace and job satisfaction that I can um tease out like what's happening there is it is it just what's happening in the person's job or is it also these these more macro contextual types of of factors um and then the country specific cultural variables these are all taken from the globe project some of you might be familiar with that uh, there's a whole range of different uh, variables. Uh, the most recent data released by the Globe Project uh, is now getting a little dated. It's it's a little over a decade old, um, and and they're working on updating it. Uh, but but they basically categorize different societies in terms of uh, a wide range of of uh, cultural characteristics and dimensions. Um, so controlling for those cultural characteristics and dimensions, as well as the socioeconomic and geopolitical factors, um, you can start to have a sense of what macro variables are impacting versus what micro variables are impacting the nature of work and jobs. Now, inside the box, you can see um, all of the kind of core analysis. Oh, I should back up too. For for anyone who, who loves statistics, um, the way this model works is it's a hierarchical hierarchical linear model so in when you're actually running the statistics you have one level where you look at these contextual variables outside the box and how they impact everything inside the box and then from there you control you, you run a second model where you're controlling um, not only for the individual control variables inside the box but you're also continuing to control for the the contextual variables outside the box and ultimately you can see, they all connect with each other uh in in terms of the outcome variable or the the dependent variable um so that's what i've done in in these analyses um even though i won't get into all of those kinds of outputs and results in this um short presentation for individual control variables um basic things like uh, gender age education uh, marital status size of family um, there are other variables that would be really great to include um, but as in any situation when you're dealing with secondary data, um, you know you're you're limited to the variables that are there, right? Um, so there are other things I would love to include. Um, but but for the variables that are uh, included across all thirty seven countries, um these are the the individual and family control variables. And then for organizational and job characteristics uh, control variables, work hours, job classification, um, code, So so you can see exactly what type of job, what industry they're in, Uh, supervisory status, employment relationship, uh, whether it's a public or private organization, those are those consistent control of the variables across the 37 countries. And then we get into the meat of those variables that are that I think are really driving uh, employee motivation, engagement and job satisfaction. So we have work life balance variables, intrinsic rewards, extrinsic rewards and work relations. Uh, In those work-life balance, in the work-life balance category, you have working from home, uh, working weekends, schedule flexibility, flexibility to deal with family matters, and the extent to which work interferes with family. Uh, The intrinsic variables are interesting work, job autonomy, helping others, and job being useful to society as a whole. Extrinsic variables include job security, pay, promotional opportunities, physical effort, and work stress and the work relations include relationships with your coworkers, relationship with management your contact with others throughout the nature of your work and the extent to which you experience discrimination in the workplace or harassment in the workplace uh, and then all of this then feeds into uh, job satisfaction okay. okay so just real high level quick descriptive comparison as we look at job satisfaction across countries. So this is based on the 2015 data, um, and we can see the mean scores. Um, Oh, and I apologize, I'm looking at it. This graph doesn't include the names of all the countries. (laughs) Uh, It includes about half of them. Um, I just need to stretch it out a little bit more so all all of the names will pop up. Anyways, all 37 countries are included here, and you can see um, that there is, of course, variation in job satisfaction levels across countries. And you have some countries uh, that are particularly high. This uh, 5.8, I believe is um, uh, one of the Nordic countries. Over here, you can see uh, Denmark, uh, 5.5. That's one of the higher ones. Um, and uh, Venezuela all the way at the end at 5.9. And this is on a seven points uh, Likert scale. And, and then we have, Um, on the low end, you have some Asian countries, uh, China 4.7, Japan 4.5. Um, and I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, this 4.8, um, Russia's right next to it. So it's, it's not Russia anyways. Um. there's a lot of variation. So then the question emerges, well, why, why is there all this variation in job satisfaction? Um, is work that much worse in China and Japan than it is in say Nordic countries? Um, Switzerland, Sweden, Denmark, you know, some of these places, and if, if, uh, if it's not just the nature of work itself, that's significant, that's significantly different, what are some of those drivers um, in terms of the socioeconomic and geopolitical factors, the cultural factors that could be influencing the perceptions of, of um, workers within these countries and, and how motivated, engaged, and satisfied they are with their work. Uh, here's just one other quick um, descriptive slide looking at job satisfaction by age so for this um, graphic this is just all employees globally in all 37 of those countries Um, and we can see variation by age Um, the overall mean for job satisfaction uh, regardless of age uh, is a little over uh, 5.3 but you can see that workers who are younger Um, start off with higher job satisfaction then it dips quickly uh, and then it's fairly steady across kind of those those main uh, first employable years and then something super interesting happens and as as people get older they start to experience even more satisfaction in their work towards the tail end of their career and we know that as i mentioned earlier that people are are working longer and longer so Traditionally, we thought of 65 as kind of that retirement age, and some people still really are still, you know, shooting for that, but increasingly people are retiring at 70, 75, or even later. Um, And so, of course, anyone who's working at 85-plus and their job satisfaction shoots off the chart, um, you know, I imagine they're only doing stuff that they really love, that they really enjoy. Otherwise, they just wouldn't even be doing it. Um, Okay. Now, here, let me move this. Here you can see the main um, regression results just in building that main model. So so what I did and anyone who you know who, who does a lot of statistics, this is just a basic um, ordinary least squared regression. And I started with all these control variables. Um, this is all the stuff that's inside the, that box, that model that I showed you earlier. And so you run um, all the base model controls, and you do each chunk of variables separately as you build the model and try to figure out what the best possible model is overall. And along the bottom, you can see the adjusted R squared. That's the overall um, amount of variability in the outcome variable or the dependent variable that can be explained by the the, um, the independent variables or the the model variables. So, for example, in this base model, these are just control variables, right? Um, and you can see. All of them except for family size are statistically significant. Um, And overall, though, they only predict about 3% of variability in job satisfaction. Uh, Here we can see the intrinsic factors. And those intrinsic factors predict they're all significant. They predict about 25% of variability in job satisfaction. And then we have the uh, extrinsic factors. They're all significant. They predict about another, um, another, Uh, 20% of variation in job satisfaction, then we have uh, the workplace relationships, that's about 22.5%, and then we have work-life balance factors, and that predicts about 8% of job satisfaction. So all of these are significant. We then combine it all into one main combined model, and that's what we see here on the far column. Uh, And when all of these variables are inputted in the regression together, Uh, and so then we're simultaneously controlling for each and every other variable within the model as well. The collective, um, uh, predictability of the model for all employees and all job types and all types of organizations across all countries is about 43%. So this model predicts about 43% of the variation in job satisfaction for employees globally. Now that, so that's, Interesting, I suppose, but then what's really interesting is when you start to look at differences um, across countries uh, and trying to understand that the reasons uh, for those differences um, and here in in this figure, you can just see model predictability Across countries, so my last um, graph where I didn't have all the countries listed, um, they're all here so you can see them on this one and. Um, there's huge variation in the amount of predictability across the w- when that base model when that main model is applied across all 37 countries. So in Australia, it predicts 63% of variation in job satisfaction, but it's only 27% uh, in China, and it's only 15% in the Philippines. Um, you can see that overall, that overall mean is about 43%, in countries that are above and below. Uh, in the U.S., it's a little bit more predictive than the global mean. Um, and in a lot of countries, it's kind of right around the mean or, you know, anyways. you it, it, So I think that's interesting in and of itself. And then we're trying to figure out, well, why? So, for example, in that last graph, um, the overall level of job satisfaction in Japan is one of the lowest in the world, uh, at least for those 37 countries. But the model actually overperforms in Japan. So the model uh, is explains 50, 56% of the variability, uh, as opposed to kind of the global mean of 43%. So that's interesting. And, and I, I've spent probably 30 plus academic papers parsing through all of these differences across, um, you know, slicing the data in all of these different types of ways and trying to understand what's going on um, between all these different countries, within these countries, across job types, across genders, across all sorts of, of things okay so um that's that's as much as i wanted to get into in terms of the statistics for this presentation um but a a few things to to note in terms of some results some future research uh i i showed you as an example just that that age and job satisfaction um graph and analysis does show that age has a positive statistically significant impact on job satisfaction um and it's also a, a a significant control variable um, in the model for all respondents uh, with that positive relationship there's also clearly cross-national differences in the the impact of age so if we if we're just slicing the data just to look at age and the role of age on job satisfaction globally you know there's some interesting things to find but we can slice it in so many different ways we can look at um, sector and um, occupational category we can look at job type we can look at supervisory status we can look at gender differences. We can look at specific differences ac- uh, across specific countries, and it's super interesting. Um, this research uh, does support previous findings about age, uh, but there still needs to con- there still continues to need uh, a need for better understanding of how age-based differences uh, in worker satisfaction relates to other organizational, institutional, economic, social, and individual outcomes. So, from a research perspective, that's kind of a a real quick run through of kind of this large body of research that I've been a part of over the last decade, and and lots of other academics have been a part of as well. Um, now I want to shift and take. How are we doing on time? I, I, I'll try to only take about ten more minutes, and then we can leave the rest of time for Q and A. Q&A. Okay. Um, so now I want to shift towards practitioner orientation. So what does this all mean? Um, you know beyond. You know publishing in an ap- academic journal uh, who's going to find value in this and my hope is that um, leaders and organizations would find this information very um, uh, important and valuable uh, one of the things that we see consistently in the data um, across waves over time um, and across countries is that meaningful work matters so if meaning, if, if people are motivated and they're engaged and they're satisfied with their jobs when they have interesting and meaningful work where they have an opportunity to do um, what they do best, at least a little bit each and every day to make a real contribution. Um, if, if we know that, then that has implications for how we need to be leading our teams. Um, so a few possible questions that we could ask ourselves, that we can um, ask our people. Why does it matter if employees find their work interesting? Uh, is that just a nice to have, or is that something that we really need to try to build into the design, the very design and nature of the work that we have our people do? How can I demonstrate to my employees that their work benefits the broader society? Now we work at an educational institution. This this one's probably not very difficult for most of us. Um, as, a, as an academic, um, I can see the value and how I benefit society by interacting with my students and preparing them for their future careers and to be um, productive citizens and active citizens in their communities to better the world around them. That has real meaning, that has real value. Uh, I also have a lot of interest in my work just because you know, as academics, we get to do a lot of different things, right? We get to dabble in a bunch of different things. We get to explore our interests. We get to focus on those things that are most um, important to us and uh that's actually quite a unique facet of the work that we do and not everyone's as fortunate um to have that amount of flexibility in in how they design their own work experience um, but that makes for interesting work um how do my employees feel about their work uh do they find you know i i might try to design a work environment and jobs that i think are interesting and meaningful but how does that translate over to what my people actually think and what salient drivers to them all the data that i was just showing you was super macro level you can drill down into really individual level types of outcomes but even then ultimately it's one thing to talk about the data in a statistical model it's a totally different thing altogether to go into a team of people say i'm a manager and i have five people that report to me or something Um, and actually knowing them, knowing their salient factors, knowing what motivates them and all sorts of things influence that life stage influences that Uh, family dynamics and what's going on at home influence influences that. So there's just so many different things. And ultimately we need to know our people and, or if we hope to, um, to create meaningful work and how can I better design the jobs of my team? So the work they do is more meaningful. Um, and and frankly, there's a lot of things that you can do that are low cost or no cost to increase meaning and purpose in the work that people do. Uh, so it's it's I'm not talking about like hiring a you know high price consultant. Um, th- there may be a, a time and a place for that um, or some some new program. It doesn't necessarily have to be anything complex. Uh, but there's a lot that you can do that's low cost or no cost that can start to make an immediate impact. Uh, another important areas job autonomy. Um people want to have the opportunity to make decisions about how they perform their job, right? And that's actually one of the things I value the most about my job currently is that I have so much autonomy. Um, and you know I'm I'm a I, I'm someone who likes to be productive and and I don't want to spin my wheels or waste my time on things. And so job autonomy is awesome because that means I get to design my experience at work each and every day as long as I'm productive and as long as I get stuff done and and as leaders providing more opportunity for job autonomy needs means we have to let go of some control we need to trust in our people um and we need to empower them to do their best work and when we can do that um and they can learn how to exercise uh uh, appropriately their own job autonomy, then things can really thrive within organizations. Uh, we could go on and on. Um, in terms of some of those uh, work-life balance factors, uh, working from home and scheduling flexibility have been big determinants of engagement, motivation, and job satisfaction for employees. And it's it, you know one of the, those biggest factors in terms of attracting and retaining good people within an organization consistently over time. And that certainly has played out in my data analysis in this international sample. I think this is particularly relevant, though, as we again, as we continue to to move into the future of work and as we see an acceleration into that future based on this COVID dynamic that we're all a part of. Um, I've worked remotely before, but it hasn't been until COVID happened that that became my predominant mode of work. Um, and my wife also works from home. Um, my kids are all doing online school, right? We're all navigating, um, all of this virtual work and working from home with that comes scheduling flexibility, if the employer will allow for it. So then it doesn't really matter when I'm doing my work. Um, you know, I'm not always the greatest sleeper. And so if I'm up at like four in the morning and I know I'm, there's no chance of me getting back to sleep. You know i can get up and work and i don't need to wait until eight o'clock likewise i don't need to do simply eight to five you know there's often times that i will take breaks during the day i'll work early i'll take a break during the day i'll work into the evening after the kids are in bed you know those types of situations i think we're all feeling out and trying to uh, determine what works best for us and our families um, i have six children who are all doing online school right and so that is a dynamic that requires a a level of flexibility for me to care for my family situation uh, while also trying to meet my obligations for my employer UVU right and so as an as a manager as I can provide appropriate scheduling flexibility I can provide um, reasonable working from home options uh, that can do a lot to ease the pressure that people are feeling particularly during something like a pandemic um, and and people highly value that and they appreciate the effort that employers make to allow for that. Um, and coming back to what I mentioned earlier about that acceleration into the future of work, because of increasing, rapidly increasing disruptive technologies, um, I don't think we're going to ever be going back to the way things used to be. Um, this, in fact, I believe, has only sped up the process for how things are going to continue to shift. So we need to, we, and we've all been living it, we've all been adapting to it. I think in some ways that's been a really healthy challenge um, uh, t- for all of us amidst this pandemic to try to learn how to grapple with this. Um, because it's, it's, it's going to be part of our reality for a long time to come. Uh, flexibility to deal with family matters. Um, I'm running short on time, so I'm not gonna read all these questions, but there's a lot of good questions to consider as, as a manager or as a leader. Um, what can I do to allow more opportunity for flexibility um, for my people? Reducing work interference with family, having weekends off, there's lots of of uh, research that demonstrates the value of of these aspects. And I think part of it just comes back to understanding and recognizing that our people, you know the people in our organizations our employees have complex lives um some some employers some leaders have the mindset of keep your home life at home and when you're at work just work and leave everything else to the side um i mean i, I fundamentally disagree with that um approach I, I think it's wrong for so many reasons um, if for nothing else it just simply is not Realistic. Uh, There's just no possible way that people who, you know, say you're caring for uh, an elderly parent who is immunocompromised right now during COVID and you're trying to figure out how do you them and helping your kids with online school and doing your work. Um, If your employer is expecting you to just somehow compartmentalize and that that's not going to impact your productivity at work and your ability to contribute and innovate and all of that. Uh, I, I they're just fooling themselves, uh, plain and simple. And the research bears that out. Uh, that's not just my opinion. <laughs> the, there's so much research to to demonstrate that. And so we need it's it's just the reality that that we are living in and that means we need to find ways to show more empathy to our people. We need to find ways to um, be more supportive of them and ultimately give them the flexibility that they need so that they can juggle everything that they're doing and then that can again as i mentioned earlier that can lead to um, greater organizational commitment greater levels of trust people in organizations that have this kind of a dynamic uh, that i've been describing they are so much more loyal they're willing to put up with more they're willing to do more um, and they're re- willing to stick around even when things are really rough, um, and they're willing to weather storms because they know that their boss has their back. Um, and in, in conversely, people know when their boss doesn't have their back, and they know when they're looking for reasons to get rid of them. They know when um, they know when their their employer doesn't trust them, or you know, and that certainly that manifests it, itself in, in various micromanaging behaviors. There's just so so much here to think about, and unfortunately, I don't have uh, enough time to go into as much depth um, as as I would hope. Um, But that gives you a taste at least. And if you're interested in finding out more about any of this, uh, feel free to reach out to me. Uh, There's lots of studies that I've published along these topics um, that that give more specific detail. And uh, the bottom line is, there's a lot that we can do to enhance. The experience of our people, um, both in regular kind of times as well as in the current COVID environment, and as we come out of COVID, whenever that is, whether it's you know another six months, another year, however long, um, our people will remember. They'll remember how we treated them during this time, and they'll they'll uh, remember as more and more organizations will have um, ongoing virtual work arrangements. Um, they will have people will have more options so there will be a lot of more um uh, movement in the labor force so we need to value our people now we need to make sure that they understand why we're a great place to be and that we're investing in them And if we can do that um then i think that's that's the surefire um recipe to drive sustainable long-term organizational success okay i'm talking too much so i'm going to stop sharing my screen um, and I'll leave the remainder of the time, and I'm happy to stay past one even, so uh, I'll the remainder of the time for any questions, and uh, yeah, feel free to just unmute yourself, chime in, or put it in the chat. Okay, so I've got a question. We live in a kind of a litigious society. Does your research show um, the effects of the positive environment that you're speaking of um, in the workforce and valuing your employees decreases the propensity for litigation. Yeah, yeah, uh, it, it really does. And it does in a very major way. Um, and it, you're right. We, we do live in a litigious society. And so. You know, a big part of my field of HR is compliance and uh, employment law, and there. So there's lots of things you have to do, uh, and there's lots of minefields and traps that you can fall into if you're not careful. Uh, that's the reality. So, so we don't want to dismiss the importance of of uh, the legalities and the compliance issues, but there's a fundamental difference between an organization. That's focusing on its people versus an organization that's more fear-based and compliance-oriented. And more fear-based compliance-focused organizations almost always are not people-focused organizations. People-focused organizations also then um, tend to have much fewer incidents of litigation. Um, people find you know there's there's fewer incidents of sexual harassment um, experiences or um, other types of um, negative workplace behaviors that can even lead to those types of um, litigation experiences. Uh, but even when those do exist, when people feel um, like they're in a, a people-centered organization where where their leaders value them and where their leaders have their back and trust them, they're going to be far more likely to try to work through problems with their leaders and with their boss rather than feel like they the only um the only way through the challenge they're facing is to bring in a lawyer and file a formal complaint with the department of labor and file a lawsuit um and it's it's really unfortunate when when that happens but too often organizations can inadvertently kind of spiral down into an overly compliance based kind of a fear-based culture and when that happens uh, it starts to manifest in a lot of different ways, just the policies, the practices and procedures that that start to um, really demonstrate the culture to the people. And then people realize that, you know, my employer doesn't trust me. My employer is looking for ways to stick it to me. My employer is looking for ways to get rid of me. Um, they're tr- looking for ways to cover their butt rather than trying to look out for their people. Um, when when we start down that negative spiral um it's it's big trouble and so we we need to recognize the reality of of compliance issues we need to, of course to do everything um in accordance with the law and correctly um but it it's true that when we focus on our people and we invest in our people they're more engaged they're more happy they're more satisfied they've they the incidence of negative workplace behaviors goes way down and the the incidence of these types of litigation experiences go down thank you Mm -hmm. how does do companies who are so focused on the bottom line um when when the profit is the most important thing how do they balance that with their employees um and getting the employees to perform in the manner that they want them to. Yeah. I mean, in from my viewpoint, um, it's really a difference between a short-term versus a long-term perspective. The research is super clear. If you invest in your people and create um, dynamic cultures that are diverse and inclusive and create, you know, an environment of, of belonging and meaning and purpose, when you do that, and that takes investment. That takes attention from organizational leaders. But when you do that, it leads to so many positive outcomes for the individual employees and for the for the organization as a whole. Um, so in the long term, it it it's it's way better for the bottom line when an organization focuses on those things. However, in the short term, it can look uh, it can it can hurt the way you appear. <laughs> and that's part of the trouble we have with our short-term orientation in, in the U.S., for example. Um, you know, everything is driven so much by quarterly earnings reports and just like these immediate kind of uh, orientations that we have that we we want to see progress right now. And, and because of that, um, a lot of times what ends up happening is that that you're, you're you're pushing people to get results now that will ultimately hurt you and undermine your own efforts in the long term, uh, and that I think it's, it's it's not a mutually exclusive goal to have to to make money and have profits um, as well as value your people and there's so many really great examples of that of companies that have done that and you can do comparative studies of of organizations that take a fear-based compliance-based um profit focused approach versus companies in the same industry um, doing the same types of work same products and services who take a people-centric first approach and it. what it demonstrates is there's just no there's not it's a it's a false dichotomy. It's not a trade-off. Um, you can do both. Um, so that's that's how I would respond to that question. Um, though it's obviously gets more complex than that when you start to get into the details.